ain't our ball. It ain't our ball. It's our ball, ain't it? It's our ball. Hey, it's our ball. It's our ball. Dave just laid the ball up down there. It's our ball. Good morning and welcome to the Daily Ding. Happy Friday morning. We have all the action from Thursday's playoff bonanza in the bubble at Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando. I'm Jared Weiss. I am joined by Mo Tequil with Andrew Schlecht busy freezing some envelopes. Coming up on today's show, the Rockets are still flying. The Heat, they get hot. The Bucks finally roll, but we have a new NBA feud. Before we get to any of that, the Lakers they're back. They beat the Blazers 111 to 88. This was an absolute trouncing in this one. Um, they were, it was kind of close in the first half and then an absolute slaughter in the second half. So, Mo, are the Lakers once again by far the greatest team in NBA history? Yes. Move on. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Thank you. And that's a daily ding. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> we don't need to do anything else, folks. No, I think this was something of hey, the Lakers have been hearing everything everybody's been saying since they lost on Tuesday. And this is one of those things where they came out to play, came out very aggressive from the beginning. And I think they set the tone early and they were ready to roll. And if you don't mind, Jared, I'm just going to bring up, you know, when I was with the Clippers my last year, <laughs> we we lost game one to the Warriors in the uh, first round of the playoffs. And you know, it's like Doc made a point, you know, at the start of game two, like he got the guys ready to roll and play angry. And that's pretty much what I saw tonight in the sense of it looked like Vogel pushed all the right buttons. You know, LeBron was super into it. We saw him screaming during one timeout when the first off, it's great that he was wired, but screaming during, you know, one situation when he was like, no, 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 it's our ball. It's our ball. It's our ball. and going completely nuts. Um, I thought, it was a, a pretty impressive showing from the Lakers, both offensively and defensively. And let's talk about what happened at the rim, because there was a bloody murder there in the first quarter, because the Lakers, whether it was attacking on perimeter dribble drives, whether it was like cross court entry passes into the deep post or just guys just kind of driving and dumping it right off to the guy in the dunker spot. The Blazers could not keep the Lakers from the rim. It was, I mean, Hassan Whiteside, who had some really impressive defensive uh, performances in um, in game one, was horrendous defensively in this game. And Nurkic couldn't stop anybody at the rim. And, of course, it all started with Anthony Davis, who had 31 points on 13 made field goals. A nice little palindrome there for Davis. I mean, but it wasn't just him. It was JaVale McGee, who had like a Michael Jordan-esque up and under move, which was pretty fun. Dwight Howard, once he came into the game, he was also just crushing them underneath for a team. I mean, it's, I think what's fun about these two teams clashing, even with Zach Collins out, these are two teams that can play double big. And it just seems like the Lakers, unsurprisingly, I guess, have a massive advantage when you get into that kind of game with them. Yeah, but, you know, also, Jared, the, the stuff that was interesting was like when the Blazers put in uh, Nurkic and Whiteside because of the Collins injury, the Lakers actually went small. And they had, you know, they put LeBron at the four and AD at the five. I mean, they were just willing to go right away at this. And I thought they did a phenomenal job getting LeBron touches in the post. I mean, the very first possession was a post touch for LeBron, which he found JaVale McGee ducking in uh, right in front of Nurkic for a, a quick dunk. You know, they're, they're just, their aggression was outstanding. Like, they, they honestly 
came to play and ready to roll. And I think the Blazers were due for a bad game like this, to be honest. Like, they really struggled on everything. I mean, the fact is they got outshot by three by the Los Angeles Lakers, who've been the worst three-point shooting team in the bubble. It was uh, 36.8% to 27.6%. It's normally the other way around. And I think that's something that I just think all the energy they expended to get in, all the the push in game one and everything, I think they were just due for this incredibly bad game. I mean, you had the, the Lakers winning the assist battle 26 to 14, the three-point attempt battle 38 to 29. And I mean, frequency of three-pointers, that is kind of like a, almost a race nowadays in the NBA. And it really showed that the Lakers were swinging the ball and they were finding good looks at three while the Blazers just didn't have much ball movement going on. And the Lake, for the Lakers, it was like almost like they could just kind of, their stars could kind of sit back, wait for the defense to come to them, and then pick them apart. And I, I thought that the most impressive thing, besides just AD's individual relentlessness and dominance, was LeBron was posting up. The Blazers would come hard double him. He would just very carefully take his time dealing with the double team until one of his guys cut into the right spot, and he would just slip it right to them for an easy basket. And it seemed like the Lakers could have just ran that offense pretty much the entire night, and they would have still won the game easily. I mean, they were just in good shape in that sense. And I think, you know, we're we're not even hitting on how well they were defensively. You know, I think they were very sharp defensively. I, ke- I think they kept their... They, they got out of drop coverage and were mostly up on Dame and kind of just making it really difficult for him and for CJ. And, you know, Yusuf Nurkic had a tough night. I just think in general, they just they were ready to rock on both ends of the floor. I think, you know, Danny, uh, not Danny Ainge, if he was playing, that'd be a whole weird situation. <laughs> uh, Danny Green, who, who struggled early in shooting and everything, but he was playing super hard defensively and was making plays. I just. Honestly, it was uh, the performance we've expected from the Lakers, this this being the number one seed. And this is, I mean, this is just the way it is. This is what we've been expecting, and we're, we're finally beginning to see it. Actually, I'm glad you said that because quickly before we wrap up on this game, uh, you were just talking before we went on the air about how you were frustrated with Anthony Davis, uh, his defense guarding those pick and rolls with Dame Lillard way up high late in crunch time. How, how did you feel like the Lakers did of adopting to just how aggressive you have to be with Dame throughout the game? I think they were great. I think they were on it the whole night, you know, and, and hassled him. I think that's why, you know, he kind of struggled shooting and it was a frustrating night. I know he, he and, and we'll get into it, he, he dislocated his finger on a play in the third quarter, but he was one for seven from three before all that. You know, it was just they didn't give him a ton of airspace. And I think that's kind of how you have to play Dame. You cannot be in drop coverage against a guy as good as Damian Lillard. All right, let's head over. I always say let's head over to Milwaukee, but I forgot they're all in the same place. So let's head over to possibly a different hotel where the Bucks and the Magic played in the Bucks won 111 to 96 to even up the series. It was a shocker that the Orlando Magic won that first game. And then the Magic did something not surprising, which is that everyone besides Nick Vucevic forgot how to shoot the ball. And so Nick Vucevic, <laughs> he had 32 points in this game on 13 for 23 shooting. The rest of the team went 18 for 66, 27% from the field. And you can't do that when you're going up against Brooke Lopez, who was on fire. Pat Connaughton goes five for eight from deep. But Giannis 
has a 28.20 rebound game. I mean, an unbelievable performance from Giannis. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was Giannis. This is what we expected to see from him. And this is the kind of stuff, you know, the Orlando Magic trying to build a wall and transition on a few occasions. And, you know, it just wasn't good enough. And uh, a lot of times they weren't in the right spots. And Giannis took advantage of it and would get to the rim at will. And, you know, I mean, and, and it's hard. His length is so crazy, Jared. Like, he had a spin move and covered eight feet in one step. Like, like I'm tearing my groin if I try to do I, First off, I'd have to jump several ways. But, like, it's, it's just impressive how long he is. And he's able to get there with his go-go gadget arms and things like that. You know, it, he's a nightmare matchup. And it was pretty bad for Orlando. I mean, their first quarter was god-awful. Only 13 points. They took him nearly halfway through the second quarter to get to just 20. So they really struggled on the offensive end. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's Fooch, and that's pretty much it for them. He He's doing a, a really nice job fighting underneath, getting into those pick-and-pop scenarios. He only shot two for eight from deep. It feels like he has to hit, like, 50 to 60% of his threes if they're going to even have a chance. And they still ended up losing this game pretty cleanly. Uh, but let's talk about Brooke Lopez. Now, Brooke Lopez has just not been scoring well for you know for a while now frankly and and he has not been shooting nearly as well this year as he has all year and he comes out and he has pretty much a perfect game from his perspective i mean he did an incredible job defensively as he always does he went four for eight from deep my favorite play of the game it was actually it was almost identical to the laker game where Giannis, like lebron is in the post getting doubled and the center comes flying through the lane it's brooke lopez so you don't really think of much as a uh, as a cutter from the top of the key very often but Obviously, he could do it when he needs to. And he flew through the lane, threw down a thunder dunk and let out one of those huge, massive baritone screams that he's capable of that shook Mickey Mouse from all the way on the other side of Disney World. But <laughs> does this, you know, like the, the Bucks looked pretty horribly exposed in that first game in this game. Something's still off. And Chris Middleton, we'll get to him in a sec, was very, very off. But. Seeing Brooke Lopez really come alive as a score, does that make you think that the Bucs can figure this out and still, you know, continue to be an, the elite dominant team in the Eastern Conference? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a positive step forward, right? We're not talking about, wow, mid, uh, uh, Brooke Lopez isn't hitting shots. This is a disaster. You know, I think it's it's positive as they move forward and continue to go through everything. I think the the thing for me, though, is, and you said it, like things are still a little bit off. Look, they won by... 15 points, only 18 points in the fourth quarter. Like this was an uninspiring win to me. Like this just, and and I'm stealing that from Seth part. Now my partner from nerd she wrote in a text exchange that we had. And but, former you know, Bucks executive. Yeah. I don't like to give him that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, uh, for, rele- for relevancy's sake, I think it should be noted here. Sure. No, I'm not allowing that. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's one of those things like look at how the Lakers responded to losing game one. And it looked like that's how the Bucks were going to respond, except they took their foot off the gas and Orlando made it a nine point game with five minutes left. You know, the Lakers came in there, not only put their foot on the throats of the Portland Trailblazers, they squashed them. And they said, You're, there's no chance of you coming back tonight. And I think that's just such a big difference between that. And and that's a little bit troubling for me if I'm a, a Bucks fan, because I'm just like, really, what's kind of going what's going on? 
And you've got to be a little bit worried when DJ Augustine is going 10 for 10 from the free throw line. If DJ Augustine is able to kind of cut into your defense and start drawing fouls, that does show that the drop can be exposed to a degree. And that, that's the whole thing with Milwaukee is, you know, their drop defense, it dominates throughout the year. But what happens when they come up against, a, you know, an offense that is incredibly talented with pull-up artists and is game planning for them all night? Obviously, the Magic are not going to test them on that. And I'm pretty confident that the Magic are not going to win the series and Milwaukee is going to continue to run away with it. But, yeah, there's some legitimate things to be worried about in the next round. Yeah, no, I mean, it's concerning because it just gets tougher from here. And I think that's something that the Bucks need to start kind of shaping up here a little bit. They haven't looked that great in the bubble. We understand they weren't playing for much when they even came in. But this is getting a little bit worrisome am i in panic mode no i'm not like okay i'm freaking out what what the hell is going on but there's there's a slight concern where i'm wondering and this is this is the kind of stuff when i watch this and go like this is why the other eastern conference teams are not afraid of the bucks well the nba lottery it happens at the same time it always does the middle of august and the Minnesota Timberwolves are picking number one. They beat out the Golden State Warriors, who have the second pick. The Charlotte Hornets jump into three in the Chicago Bulls with their new front office administration. They are at number four. Pretty huge haul for them. Then the rest of the order is Cleveland Cavaliers at five, six Atlanta Hawks, seven Detroit Pistons, eight New York Knicks, nine Washington Wizards, 10 Phoenix Suns, 11 San Antonio Spurs, 12 Sacramento Kings, 13 New Orleans Pelicans, and 14 Boston Celtics. So, Mo, I guess obviously the Wolves are the winners here, but I guess which is the the, the landing that is most notable to you? I mean, it's the Knicks. Okay. <laughs> and, 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 and it makes me – I just it, – it, it made me relieved because if the Knicks won – won the first pick then i would really think man 2020 might be the end uh but again <laughs> this brought us a little normalcy we're looking like it's we're we're, we're we're running back to we might be getting somehow back to normal i feel a little bit better <laughs> about that but you know it's just I, I i hurt for knicks fans i feel sorry for you guys but i just can't stop laughing about it every time i look at the draft lottery I mean, it's another nightmare scenario for the Knicks where their their top picks in the last few years. It's been Kevin Knox, which was the, the ninth pick. Right. So that was a low pick. Then they go up to the top and they get R.J. Barrett, who could still prove to be pretty great. But the two guys picked ahead of him are literally already all stars. And then now they're stuck with another late pick in a draft where. Picking number four and picking number 13 are honestly not that different. So uh, maybe, you know, winning the lottery, getting LaMelo ball, that would have been pretty great. And also, it just would have been really funny if the Ball brothers ended up getting drafted by the Lakers and the Knicks of all places. I mean, that would have been pretty amazing. But that'd be it'd be funny. But I'd also we also should mention this, too. They didn't have the best odds to move up, but it's just the fact they got jumped over, which is hilarious. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Knicks are always going to nick it up, right? So, <laughs> so the Warriors, they have the second pick. We'll see if that stays there. But uh, that is very interesting that the, it, it's just it's good to see that the incredibly exciting storyline of the Warriors getting everybody back next year and having the second pick of the draft and having Andrew Wiggins, you know, they can make a lot of noise happen. They can 
try to pick up a lot of disgruntled players in the Eastern Conference on underachieving teams that seem to be going nowhere. So, yeah, there's there could be some very interesting action happening this offseason. Um, and the offseason, it's going to take longer. We know that free agency is being pushed back. And Adam Silver, during the broadcast, he told Rachel Nichols of ESPN that December 1st might be a little too early for next season to begin. Uh, there was already, I think it was Chris Mannix uh, reported that um, Michelle Roberts in a recent call with some players apparently told them to expect sometime between late January and early March as a potential start date for next season, they seem pretty intent on pushing it back so that they can try to get fans in the stands. And that will be obviously uh, a lot more possible in March, 2021 than December 1st of 2020. Yeah. I, I always was kind of skeptical when I first heard originally that they were thinking December 1st with the fact that the season, this season might not end until, you know, mid October. I, I just didn't think there was enough time. So I was always skeptical of that. All right, well, we're going to finish up the news section with the two greatest words in all of sports. Coach fight. We had coach fight, um, coach fight, coach fight. (laughs) In one quarter, we have the worst commentator in the history of the NBA, the greatest coach in Golden State Warriors history, Mark Jackson. And then in the other corner, someone who has never, ever, ever said anything out of line ever as a coach, somebody who's a defensive mastermind, and someone who continues to be a viable candidate for coaching openings, George Carl. So Mark Jackson, during the broadcast, talking about Carmelo Anthony as the Blazers are getting their butts kicked by the Lakers because they can't defend, is trying to use that as a moment to make the point that Carmelo Anthony is a much better defender now because of the coaches and team that he's around in Portland. Kind of hinting that the coaches and teams he was around in the past weren't very good defensively, which must have shocked George Carl, who, of course, is known as one of the all time great defensive coaches. So he decided to tweet with uh, he actually added Mark Jackson in this one, which I didn't even know Mark Jackson was on Twitter. Um, He said, I heard Mark Jackson is taking shots at my defensive coaching during tonight's broadcast. Remind me. How many all-star teams did you coach, Mark? How many DPOYs? How many finals appearances? How many of my teams became dynasties right after I left? That is currently sitting at 9,200 retweets, 24,000 likes. Mo, retweet the crap out of that for me. I mean, this thing's amazing. You guys, I was so excited. It, It made the fact that the Laker game was a blowout much better just because I was like, ooh, I got to go through this here a little bit and, and, and find out what happened. And I'm not sure how many people caught it, but Mark Jackson definitely threw a sh- subtle shot again in the second half of this game when he turned to Jeff Van Gundy saying, I'm glad you haven't turned into a grumpy old coach. And <laughs> I think that Which is, is not a, true, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but I think, you know, th- there's just so many things to dissect. But you got to agree here, Jared. I mean, the most damaging line is how many of my teams became dynasties right after I left. Like, <laughs> you know, that's just like trying to stab the man in the heart. Like, that's just brutal. It's incredible. And it's funny because to his credit, I mean, did, didn't did Draymond become a DPOI after Mark? Um, I guess Mark probably doesn't deserve credit for that. But Mark did actually turn them into a pretty good defensive team while he was there. So he at least has more defensive chops than George Carl when it comes to his track record. But yeah, Oh, Mark whoa, Jackson. whoa, Jared. I mean, he, he did it over one year. I mean, look at what 
George Carl has done over the length of his career. <laughs> yeah, he's repeatedly over and over and over again made sure that he doesn't play defense. So <laughs> <laughs> it's it's great. And we don't get very much coach beef. It's a fraternity that's usually incredibly <laughs> insular and protective of each other. So this was this is one fun. of the first. This, I've never heard of this before. <laughs> Besides like yelling at each other during a game. Like the only time I've really ever can remember of a coach beef it's John Calipari and John Chaney from from Temple and UMass. Wow, that's going. That's a real throwback. Jeez, I don't know how All many right. of our listeners actually remember. <laughs> All right, let's get to the last two games of the day. The Heat they beat the Pacers one oh nine one hundred. They take a two nothing series lead. They had an eleven to two run in the third quarter to break it open and the Pacers, they just couldn't get over the hump. And I mean, this, this got to as big as I believe a 17 point lead. And it was not, never really that close in the second half. Miami was in full control behind Goran Dragic, who had 16 of his 20 points in the second half. Bam out continues to impact in every single way possible. But it was Duncan Robinson having a franchise playoff record tying seven three-pointers in this game. And they had a franchise record, 18 total threes. So, you know, I guess the question, Mo, has always been, can the Heat sustainably shoot that well from deep every single night? And it looks like in this game, they certainly prove that it's going to be pretty consistent. And they're going to be able to win the series, most likely. I mean, they have the advantage now being up 2-0. And I think most people were picking them to begin with. I think... Duncan Robinson got going real quick. He struggled a little bit in the first game, and I think the the Heat made a few adjustments, were able to set a couple better screens. I think this was a great Bam Adebayo game, although his numbers don't show it. Like, he just did all the little things that help you win. I mean, setting great screens, hustling for loose balls and things like that. I thought he was awesome tonight and or this morning. Or this afternoon, depending if you're on the East Coast. This time stuff really messes me up. Um, but I think altogether, this was just a good performance from the Heat. It was similar to last game where, you know, the the kids got going early and then the adults took over. Goran Dragic took over in the second half. Like you said, Jimmy Butler kind of stabilized things. I think it's, it's, you know, kind of what it looks like for the Heat. It's going to be tough for Indiana to get come back though down 2-0. I think they got to start figuring out what they want to do offensively. Yeah, I mean, Oladipo, he really tried to force it tonight and make it happen. He went 4 for 11 from deep. He did go 8 for 8 from the line. It's funny. It was him and Brogdon, 7 for 9 from Brogdon, were pretty much the only guys taking free throws on this team. Uh, Justin Holiday, he went 1 for 3 from the line. And then nobody else attempted a free throw. They just, they couldn't, they couldn't, get to the line they couldn't get i mean bam out of bio he had four fouls but he i know he probably could have fouled out if they really tried to get more aggressive um but just indiana i mean obviously they're missing their best player so i'm not surprised that they're not winning the series but you're right they just don't have anybody that can i guess take over at the level that they need them to even though you have malcolm brogdon out there with a nine to zero assist to turnover ratio yeah, I just think they just don't have the firepower behind them. You know, I, I think the thing about the Pacers is they, they're a one-action team. They run an action. If they get something out of it, great. Otherwise, it dissolves into one-on-one. And I'm sorry, I, none of these guys scare me one-on-one. Well, speaking of guys that scare you one-on-one, the Rockets, they won 1-1-1 one, one, one 
298 against the OKC Thunder. Uh, and it's a 2-0 series lead for the Rockets. James Harden, he had a beautiful step back three to ISIS one late in the game. It was a real back and forth game for the first three quarters before, of course, Houston eventually kind of took control and they made a huge run early in the fourth quarter to blow it open. And then they held it up, held it from there. Uh, but we saw Harden. He had kind of a, I guess, a relatively low usage game where he only had 16 field goal attempts, got to the line nine times. He had nine assists, 21 points. But it was Eric Gordon going over 10 from three. I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone go over 10 from three before. I got to look that up to see if it's ever happened. So while you while I do that, talk to me about the Rockets offensive distribution. Well, I'm guessing that they uh, uh, it might be somebody from uh, the game when they went over 27. Um, I think the Rockets in general did a great job getting penetration. They struggled a little bit in the first half. They, you know, the. Thunder did a good job kind of protecting the ball, but eventually, you know, it, it just led to them caving to the, the Rockets' defense. And, you know, Eric Gordon, despite shooting poorly, did a great job getting penetration and getting into the paint. And that's something that I was concerned about with the Rockets, you know, losing Russell Westbrook, who looked like an AAU coach on the sideline, uh, sleeveless <laughs> shirt and all, uh, just missing the Bluetooth earpiece. Um, somebody had tweeted that part out at me, so shout-outs to that, that guy if he was listening. Uh, you know, But it, it was a very interesting thing. And that run, to be honest, Jared, the 15-0 run with Harden on the bench, I mean, it, it's backbreaking for OKC. Like, that's when you got to make, you know, plays there you got to step up this is when you got to start getting a, not only get take a, over the game but really create a cushion so that when Harden comes back he's got to play it uphill and coming from behind but in this situation when he came back they were already cooking and it just led to Harden going like cool <laughs> by the way I got the answer well thank you that was a perfect amount of time for me to get this answer the record is 0 for 12 set by Justin Anderson of the Brooklyn Nets earlier in the bubble on August 11th. So only 10 days ago was the record set. I didn't even know that. Um, and that is tied with Brooke Lopez. And then guess who? <laughs> Eric Gordon, who also has the record <laughs> on March 4th, uh, no, February 4th this year uh, against uh, Charlotte. He went over 12 from three. And I'm pretty sure I did the ding that night now that I think about it, because I feel like I remember that. So, uh, yeah. Are Eric you just Gordon recycling the same takes? Are you <laughs> this, recycling the same takes with this different is actually, What are you doing here, Jared? Uh, we're actually running a recording of me from February 4th, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, PJ Tucker, he had a huge clutch three in the corner. He went four for four from deep in this game. I mean, it's just it, they had a nice balance in this one. It's just so cool. It it's just cool to see they lose Russ and they respond to it by going on a 14 nothing run with Harden on the bench. Harden is flexing, doing his WWE stances on the bench while they're doing that. You know, Brody is completely brodied up with the sleeveless tee and the green cap and all that stuff. Like the Rockets are carrying themselves without their two best players on the floor, you know, against one of the best teams in the league. It, it was a real shocker just to see that they're capable of pulling that off. And and one thing we haven't even t- talked about yet was their defense was outstanding tonight. You know, there was a possession where P.J. Tucker's on the weak side. He rotates over to help, then is able to get back out to his man and, and closes out, forces that guy into a difficult drive, and the Thunder end up missing it or, or having a turnover. I, I can't remember. 
which, but I just think their defense has been phenomenal throughout their entire time in the bubble. And that's something that is a bit surprising to say about the Houston Rockets over the past four or five years. Well, Mo, you've been phenomenal throughout the entire time in this podcast, so I think that's enough for us today. So that's going to do it for today's show. Do not forget about the other basketball shows across the Athletic Podcast Network because we still have your favorite shows like uh, like the Athletic NBA show, No Dunks, Tampering, House of Strauss, plus over a dozen team-specific shows available from some of your favorite athletic beat writers. Mo, name, name all the team-specific shows that you host. Uh, the, just the one, the Brody and the Beard. <laughs> just the Brody and the Beard. I thought there were but you can also catch me, catch me on Nerd or She Wrote on the NBA show as well. There we go. So don't forget to follow on the app to get notifications for new episodes and utilize the podcast episode comment section. You can tell Mo that his mustache looks absolutely superb in writing, so it's on the record. And if you're not a member of The Athletic, you're in luck because you can get all of our podcasts ad-free, plus some fantastic writing across all major sports, all for a super low price. Get a subscription today at theathletic.com slash daily ding. You never know when these promos end, so you better get there soon. And thank you, as always, for waking up with us. Mo, take us out of here. Ding, ding.